The judge in the Rittenhouse case bars MSNBC from the courtroom after a reporter allegedly follows jurors. Democrats in the House may get another push for Build Back Better, and the groundswell begins for an AOC presidential run. God help us all. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Your data is your business. Protected at expressvpn.com slash Ben. We'll get to all the news in just one moment. First, Black Friday is when you start saving money, right? Well, why don't you start saving money now? Like, why wait until Black Friday? You could be saving a ton of money by switching your cell phone coverage provider. Okay, you're spending way too much money for that right now because you want those great 5G towers, right? Well, what if you could get the exact same coverage at like half the price? This is where Pure Talk comes in. Pure Talk will give you killer 5G coverage on one of the largest 5G networks in the country and still save the average family over $800 a year. I made the switch. The coverage is excellent. Their U.S.-based customer service actually cares about you, and Pure Talk's prices are pretty much wholesale. Unlimited talk, text, six gigs of data for just $30 a month. Keep your number, keep your phone, or this month, you can get Black Friday prices on new phones like the iPhone 12 for just $479. So big savings. We've got a 30-day risk-free guarantee, so you literally have nothing to lose. Go to puretalk.com, shop for the plan and phone that's right for you, and then enter promo code SHAPIRO and you will save 50% off your very first month and save on a new phone at the same time. That is puretalk.com, promo code SHAPIRO. Pure Talk is simply smarter wireless. Some restrictions apply. See site for details. Alrighty, so another crazy development in the Rittenhouse trial. Now, remember, the jury is still out at this point. We don't know what is going on with the jury. The speculation seems to me that a hung jury is coming. Andrew McCarthy writing for National Review, he says that he believes that a hung jury is likely. Is it midday on Thursday as the third day of deliberations dragged on and there grew a foreboding sense that the jury may be deadlocked over a very straightforward case? The judge announced he had banned MSNBC from the courtroom. The, the judge, of course, is Bruce Schrader. Schrader elaborated that on Wednesday evening, a man who identified himself as affiliated with MSNBC, a guy named James Morrison, was stopped by police as he tracked the jury at close range, running a red light in that pursuit. The jurors were in a large vehicle with covered windows from which they have been escorted to and from court. Schrader said that Morrison claimed to have been acting under the direction of an MSNBC producer in New York. Now, we all know that MSNBC has been blatantly anti-Rittenhouse with all of its hosts attacking Rittenhouse, suggesting that he's guilty, suggesting he's a racist and a white supremacist, and that the outcome of this trial is going to speak for the future of race relations in America, despite the fact that only three white people got shot. Here was, uh, here was the judge announcing that he had barred MSNBC from the courtroom after this. I have instructed that no one from MSNBC News will be permitted in this building for the duration of this trial. Uh, this is a very serious matter, and I don't know what the ultimate truth of it is, but absolutely it, it, it would go without much thinking that someone who is following a, the jury bus, uh, that is a very, ex, it's extremely serious matter and uh, will be referred to the uh, proper authorities. Obviously, that is insanity. And you got reporters following jurors. Apparently, some of these reporters claim that they do this thing to get the, the license plate numbers of the jurors, and they do this fairly regularly, apparently, in order so they can ask the jurors about what they were thinking after the case is over. That's insane. It's especially insane given the high-profile nature of the trial and the fact that many of these jurors, all of them, live in Kenosha, which means that they are subject to the problems that are going to arise in Kenosha if they come down the wrong way. 
According to an MSNBC spokesperson, they said last night a freelancer received a traffic citation. While the traffic violation took place near the jury van, the freelancer never contacted or intended to contact the jurors during deliberations and never photographed or intended to photograph them. We regret the incident and will fully cooperate with the authorities on any investigation. Now, as Andy McCarthy suggests, he says, I I think a quick verdict would have favored Rittenhouse. If deliberations instead drag out, there's a greater chance of a hung jury or a compromise verdict in this case. Andy McCarthy says, in a compromised verdict, former prosecutor, which can be scandalous but is nevertheless permissible in our system, jurors avoid a hopeless deadlock by agreeing to convict the accused on some but not other charges or on lesser charges. That is, neither those who believe the defendant should be acquitted nor those who want him convicted on severe charges get what they want, but a verdict is reached even if it is not rational, i.e. it's not internally consistent or aligned with the proof. A compromised verdict sounds like a tie in the sense the defendant neither walks nor faces life imprisonment. In reality, it's a victory for the state because Rittenhouse would stand convicted of a felony and face significant prison time. What is a quick verdict? Says Andy McCarthy, it depends on the case. I was a junior prosecutor in the longest federal criminal trial in American history, the Pizza Connection case, 1985 to 87. The jury was out for six days. For the Rittenhouse case, that would seem like an eternity. But in our case, after 17 months of trying a raft of charges against 22 defendants, it seems extraordinarily quick. As I write this piece, we are seven hours into the third day of deliberations in the Rittenhouse trial that already seems long, especially because the trial was less than two weeks of testimony. And the question is whether the defendant acted in justifiable self-defense or even whether there is reasonable doubt that he did so. Remember, the standard isn't, did he act in self-defense? Is is there reasonable doubt that he might have done so? That's the defense. And that's the standard. Is there reasonable doubt? Is the clearest case, I mean, it's a clear cut case of self-defense. It is in 197% clear-cut case that there is reasonable doubt as to whether he engaged in self-defense. What this does suggest is that there may be a a situation in which the judge simply declares a mistrial if the jury comes back deadlocked, maybe a mistrial with prejudice. He just says, we're not doing this again. There have certainly been enough cases of of mistrial-laden behavior by the prosecution to support that. If the jury comes back and acquits, the judge is off the hook. If the jury comes back and and says hung jury, the judge could theoretically declare a mistrial. That that would have the same impact as a hung jury unless he did so with prejudice, which means that they can't refile the case. If they come back guilty, he could still declare a mistrial or a mistrial with prejudice based on what is going on. So there's a long way to go in this trial even once the jury comes back. And, uh, And Andy McCarthy is fairly critical about Schrader, the judge. He says, I'm, I'm constrained to observe one's assessment of Judge Bruce Schrader does not improve with extended observation. In the latest gripe session, Schrader bleated about how he'd been, how he'd been handled for his, how he'd been criticized for his handling of a defense motion for a mistrial. He said he had not even had a chance to read since it had only been filed the previous day. But the motion is six pages long, double, double spaced. He says, it appears that Schrader made up his mind before the trial there would be no sequestration and he is mulishly sticking to that. But that was a mistake because... Now that they've not been sequestered, the jury, they can be easily intimidated. And it appears that that is at the very least a possibility, given the fact that MSNBC is now apparently sending reporters as stringers to follow members of the jury. So that is uh, that is bad stuff. Alrighty, in one second, we'll get to the chaos that has now broken out on the left side of the aisle. Everybody knows Joe Biden is not running for re-election at this point because he cannot even walk. It is very difficult to run for re-election when you cannot walk. Okay, we'll get to more of that in just a second. First, I got to tell you, every time my wife and I go for a long car ride, she gets nauseous, or at least she used to get nauseous because of the car sickness until she started using Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband. It's been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting. 
associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, provides all-natural, long-lasting relief, zero side effects for as long as needed. It really is like a really, it's a cool piece of technology. It was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients. Now Relief Band is available to the masses. Relief Band stimulates a nerve in the wrist. It travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. And now Relief Band has released its newest model, Relief Band Sport. The Sport is waterproof, features interchangeable bands, and has extended battery life as well. I got one for my sister because my sister was having some morning sickness and Relief Band helped her out. It can help you out as well. As the holiday season quickly approaches, there's never been a better time to give the gift of relief. Make sure your loved ones are nausea-free. Right now, Relief Band is running their biggest sale of the year. If you head to ReliefBand.com, you'll receive 25% off all orders. You don't even need a promo code. Don't miss out on this deal. That's R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com. Receive 25% off all orders through November 28th. Alrighty, so... One thing has become eminently clear on the left side of the aisle, and that is that they are panicked about 2024. The reason they're panicked about 2024 is because Joe Biden made the idiotic decision to pick as his vice president, not somebody who was a plausible 2024 candidate, but somebody who had completely flamed out as an early candidate in 2020, Kamala Harris, who didn't even last through the California primaries. She didn't even get to her home state, despite being the early leader in the presidential race. She, she had all of the benefits of intersectionality, she was a senator from California. She had shellacked Joe Biden in the first debate by suggesting that he was a racist. And then later in the race suggested that he was a sexual assaulter. And then she dropped out of the race because she's terrible at everything. Because all she has done for her entire career is fail up. Democrats are so disquieted with her that CNN reported the other day they were talking about elevating her to the Supreme Court just to get her out of the way. That would be the greatest case of failing upward in American history. You go from being a crappy AG to being a crappy senator, to being a crappy vice president, to being a crappy Supreme Court justice. Really, America is the land of opportunity. Okay, well, Kamala Harris did yet another national interview yesterday, and they just, they all go badly for her. She's with George Stephanopoulos. I will never, ever, ever get over the fact that George Stephanopoulos is presented as a news person. I will never get over it as an objective news person. This guy was an advisor to Hillary and Bill Clinton. Again, I... Uh, if Karl Rove were presented as an objective news reporter, that is the equivalent of making George Stephanopoulos an objective news source. The media bias is so rife. But here's the thing. Kamala Harris can't even sound good when speaking with George Stephanopoulos, whose job it is to carry around a drool cup for her. It's insane. So here is Kamala Harris explaining that you can't fix the border. Eight months ago, the president gave you the job of addressing the root causes of migration. But last month, we learned that in the past year, it had the highest number of illegal border crossings since they started to be recorded in 1960. What are you doing to turn that around? How long will it take? Well, it's not going to be overnight. We can't just flip a switch and make it better. Um, the reality is that we inherited a system, an immigration system that was deeply broken, and it's requiring us to actually put it back together in terms of creating a fair um, process that is effective and efficient. Okay, um, yeah, we can't fix it is a really not a, a good answer, considering this was delegated to you. This was your job. The, Joe Biden sent you down, not to the border, to the, to the Latin American, Central American Triangle to try and solve this thing, you've done nothing. And then you said that you had visited the border when you had not visited the border. And then you said you don't understand why you should visit the border. And you're almost laughing. We can tell. You're almost laughing. The nervous, bizarre cackle that breaks out every time Kamala Harris is asked a question, she's almost there with every one of these questions. And these are not super 
Tough questions. Okay, George Stephanopoulos then asked her a softball. Does she feel underused as vice president of the United States? And here is her, here is her inspiring answer. We're getting things done and we're doing it together. So you don't feel misused or underused? No, I don't. I'm very, very excited about the work that we have accomplished, but I am also absolutely, absolutely clear-eyed that there is a lot more to do and we're going to get it done. Um, yeah, man. And then she said she wanted to bring down the cost of living. This worked out well for her, for her boss. Joe Biden, you'll remember, last year suggested he was going to get down the cost of living. And since then, the price of a Thanksgiving dinner has exploded about 20%. Here is Kamala Harris. The cost of groceries has gone up. The cost of gas has gone up. And it, as this is all happening in the context of two years of a pandemic, it's one of the highest priorities, actually, for the president and for me. And so we're dealing with this issue in a number of ways. Short term, one of the issues is the supply chain. We're seeing a bottleneck, and we need to relieve that bottleneck. So we brought together everyone from the Teamsters to Target to say, hey, let's all bring everyone together, from the truckers to the folks who are moving product, and let's open up some of our major ports for work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Okay. So this is not going down for, for Kamala Harris. It's not going well. And and the Democrats are looking forward to 2024. And the other person they keep trotting out there is Pete Buttigieg. Good luck with that. Like, really, the American people are definitely going to embrace the guy who went missing on the job for two months because he was on paternity leave. Despite the fact that, again, paternity leave was originally designed so that you can help care for a person who just experienced physical trauma, namely your wife. Pete Buttigieg took a two-month paternity leave in the middle of a supply chain crisis, and no one noticed. And then he came back and bragged about how he was a wonderful person for having taken two months of paternity leave on the public dime. So, yeah, uh, good luck. Re really, good luck. The, the intersectional firefight between the LGBT wing of the Democratic Party and the, and the people of color wing of the Democratic Party is going to be a wonder to watch. But, says Politico, there is one person, one person who's being forgotten in all of this mathematical calculation about who ought to be the 2024 Democratic nominee. We'll get to that in just one moment. First, let's talk about the fact that you need a great pair of wireless earbuds, right? You just use your earbuds all the time. Whether you are running on a treadmill or whether you're just walking around the city listening to music or whether you're on a phone call, you need a great pair of wireless earbuds. But those other wireless earbuds, they're really, really expensive. Not so with Raycons. Raycons are great. With seamless Bluetooth pairing, a comfortable noise isolating fit, you can start listening right away and keep listening for hours. The audio quality is amazing comparable to what you get from other premium brands, except Raycons start at about half the price. The new everyday earbuds come with three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass. They've got pure mode for podcast listening, balanced mode for rock. They've got bass mode for hip hop. Raycons offer eight hours of playtime, a 32-hour battery life. There's also a built-in mic. You can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button. They're convenient and they have great battery life and they're not going to cost you an arm and a leg. Go to buyraycon.com slash Ben today to unlock exclusive deals up to 20% off your Raycon order. Hurry, this offer is available for a limited time only. You don't want to miss it. That's buyraycon.com slash Ben to unlock up to 20% off your Raycons. B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash Ben. Alrighty, so here is Politico speculating about what ought to happen come 2024. Quote, amid the glut of speculation about whether Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg is Joe Biden's political heir, another important succession story in Democratic circles has gone almost entirely undiscussed. Who will inherit Bernie Sanders' ideological mantle? During the past two presidential cycles, the Vermont Independent mounted captivating, extremely well-financed bids. He lost twice, but he reshaped the Democratic Party. The size and contents of Biden's domestic agenda have been directly affected by Sanderism. He has compelled Democrats to embrace government intervention rather than hide their faith in it from public view. 
But Sanders, like Biden, is old. No one in his orbit imagines him mounting a third run should Biden call it quits. Something to be clear, the president and his team have explicitly said he isn't doing. This has left a void in the party's left wing, and it is causing anxiety among progressive operatives who believe Sanders' great discovery was that in the era of online politics, a presidential campaign was an effective tool to push unapologetic liberalism. And this is true, by the way, for a huge number of members of the government, is that they are basically Instagram influencers. They're not in the business of drawing compromise deals and trying to figure out good policy. They're Instagram influencers. And they're out there to try and get the clicks and try and get the likes and try and get the attention on, on their little videos. Because many of them make a lot of money after leaving office based on the sort of following that they have built while they were in office. I've said for a long time, I have a pretty easy job. Right? My job is to tell you what I think on a daily basis. And I can be as honest about it as I want to be, which is purely honest about how I feel about all of these issues. Politicians don't have that job. Politicians have to sort of smooth the, the sharp edges. Politicians have to make deals that may stray from principle in order to get things done. And I think that's an important thing, right? It's an important job. But politicians who masquerade as principled people who are, who are just about principle, they can do really well in the principled space. This is why Bernie Sanders has great popularity despite never having done anything of use his entire life and being an old communist leech on the public dollar. Okay, well, the, the, the question on the Democratic side of the aisle is this. If you've got Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg and they're running against each other and neither one of them have the sort of soft-spoken, he's a dead person appeal that Joe Biden had in 2020, right? His appeal was he wasn't Bernie. His appeal was he was kind of just a thing who was there and not all that threatening. Well, Pete Buttigieg is pretty threatening. That dude says crazy stuff all the time. And when Pete Buttigieg first declared for the presidency, he seemed like kind of an interesting candidate specifically because he wasn't spitting on people from middle America. Then within five minutes, he started treating himself like Pastor Pete and explaining that everybody who believed in the Bible in traditional ways, was actually a brutal gay hater. And that if you interpreted the Bible properly, you should just be a pro-gay marriage socialist, essentially. And that, that, was, that was Pete Buttigieg's new pitch. Didn't go over great. And then there's, it went over great with the, with the Democratic base. Didn't go over great with anybody else. He has no appeal with the, with the black population in the Democratic Party. Kamala Harris has no appeal with anybody. So that leaves a pretty wide opening. Actually, there's a wide, here's the dirty secret. There's a wide opening in the so-called moderate wing of the Democratic Party. And there's a huge opening on the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And the question is, which one of those wings actually pushes forward in the next primary cycle? So in the Sanders wing, Politico says, ask veterans of Sanders world who they think could fill that lane. And you get a host of recognizable, but not necessarily national names. The most common are a band of House progressives like Pramila Jayapal from Washington or Rokana or Cal of California or Katie Porter of California or members of the squad. I think the next chapter is Bernie 2.0 in color, says Chuck Rocha, a former union organizer who served as Sanders' senior campaign advisor. The next Sanders, as Rocha sees it, will follow the path laid out by one of Bernie's major influences, Jesse Jackson, whose Rainbow Coalition presidential campaigns in 1984 and 1988 fused worker rights and multiculturalism into a potent political force. Jackson had his missteps, including one fairly infamous town, one, and they link to uh, the story. That would be the one where he called New York Jaime Town, because Jesse Jackson is a vicious anti-Semite. But the Democratic Party also went into abject panic at the prospect of him winning. Rocha thinks the party's in a new place now, having seen obvious slippage with white working class and Hispanic voters. He surmises that politicians like Ruben Gallego of Arizona or Annette Baragon of California or Austin Council City member Greg Casar, a self-avowed Democratic Socialist, are the clearest embodiments of the Jackson vision. But um, yeah, nobody's ever heard of these people. So then they say, what about Elizabeth Warren? Well, Elizabeth Warren 
is old. She flamed out. Her best shot was actually in 2016 when she didn't take the shot. There is one other name, and Politico floats it. Still, there is one lawmaker who Rocha and several others said did have the ideological makeup and infrastructure already in place and a Sanders connection to boot. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat of New York, who turns 35, the legal age to be president under the Constitution, on October 13th, 2024. Bernie's no different than when he was a crazy white-haired congressman, says Rocha. What legitimized him was when he could raise tens of millions of dollars. That made him real to every power broker in America. And no one beyond AOC has been able to do that. So get ready for the AOC 2024 presidential run. I don't think this is fantasy. I really don't. Because here's the thing. What is AOC's trajectory? She's a congresswoman from a heavily blue district in New York. She's not going to win statewide office. In order to be a senator in New York, you have to at least pose as a non-democratic socialist. You do. Chuck Schumer has played this sort of inside-outside progressive game for a very, very long time. Kristen Gillibrand, when she first ran for the Senate in New York, ran as a gun-toting, pro-Second Amendment, quasi-pro-life person. And then she shifted to the left. AOC is the most obvious progressive in America. And she's not just a progressive, she's a wild-eyed progressive. She says crazy crap on a regular basis. She drove Amazon out of her city. And she, she has a record that is just terrible in her home state. So her home district may like her because, again, it is a very, very blue district. But the rest of the state, there's upstate New York you got to worry about. Like AOC is not going to be the governor of New York. She's not going to be a senator from New York. She could theoretically, you know, run for mayor of New York, but Bill de Blasio just flamed out trying the same routine that AOC would push to Eric Adams. So what is her trajectory? And the answer is, if you're AOC, why the hell not run for president? Really, why not? The media already love you. The media already slavishly pretend that you're an intelligent human being with something interesting to say, even though you have fewer than 10 brain cells to rub together. You're camera friendly, obviously. So why wouldn't you run? And how could why not consolidate the Democratic Party around you? After all, you've got that intersectional coalition running for you. You're a woman of color who solidifies that Democratic Party progressive base, and you're attacked a lot by the right which means, according to Democrats, that you are inherently good. Which moderate's going to stand up to that? You think Kamala Harris defeats AOC in a presidential primary? I have some fairly serious doubts about that. It's going to be fascinating to watch as this, uh, as this war goes on in the Democratic Party, and I'm here for it. They built her up, and now they're going to have to own it. Enjoy. Embrace the suck, guys. It's going to be really bad in 2024 for the Democrats. Already, in just one second, we will get to the Democrats and Build Back Better, they voted on that this morning, cramming through a progressive-laden garbage bill that is going to damage half their Congress people. We'll get to that in one moment first. You know, struggling to watch Joe Biden push a sentence out of his face, you know, that, that, that's difficult. It's probably even more difficult trying to figure out what in the hell he is saying if you don't have a hearing aid. That's why you need to check out MD Hearing Aid. MD Hearing Aid is an FDA-registered rechargeable hearing aid. It costs a fraction of what typical hearing aids cost. The average price of a hearing aid in America is over $2,400 a pair. But their Volt Plus model is just $299.99 each when you buy a pair. MD Hearing Aid was founded by an ENT surgeon who saw how many of his patients needed hearing aids but couldn't afford them. He made it his mission to develop a quality hearing aid that anyone could afford. Their sleek design fits so well, no one will even know when you're wearing it. It's rechargeable with battery life that lasts up to 30 hours. And if you forget to take your hearing aids off in the shower, you don't have to worry because the Volt Plus is water resistant and up to three feet of water. You don't even need a prescription or a doctor's appointment. You buy it directly from them with audiologists and licensed hearing specialists available seven days a week. So how do they make these hearing aids so 
affordable? Since about 95% of people who need a hearing aid only require a few settings, MD hearing aids simplified the need for certain components not needed by most people. Plus, they cut out the price hiking middleman. MD hearing aid has brought affordable hearing to over 600,000 satisfied customers. Plus, they offer a 45-day risk-free trial, 100% money-back guarantee, so you can buy with confidence. Veterans love MD hearing aid. Russell J says he's worked around F-4 fighter jets for many years in the Navy. He thought he'd never hear again like this. He put that Volt Plus in. He could actually hear the leaves crackling under his feet. It's time to reclaim your life from hearing loss. Go to mdhearingaid.com. Use promo code Shapiro to get their buy one, get one, $299.99 each offer. Plus, they're adding a free extra charging case of $100 value just for listeners of the Ben Shapiro Show. Head on over to mdhearingaid.com. Use our promo code Shapiro, or you can even call them at one 833 773-1146. That's 1-833-773-1146. Alrighty, so, meanwhile, the Democrats, for some odd reason, think that it's a great idea in the House to shove through Build Back Better. I do not understand the logic of this. It is absolutely illogical. I understand that Nancy Pelosi wants to demonstrate that she has some control over her caucus, but here's the problem. This bill's going nowhere. So, it's going to get to the Senate, and Manchin and Cinema are not going to vote for this thing. They're not going to vote for this thing because it's a disaster area. The CBO has already said that it adds almost $400 billion to the deficit. And that's using the crappy Democratic math that says that the bill is only like $2 trillion. It is not a $2 trillion bill. It is a $5 trillion bill. And it's being pushed through by a president with a 36% approval rating, according to the latest polls. Joe Biden's approval rating is now lower than the approval rating for toe fungus. I mean, no one likes this guy. I mean, Let's Go Brandon started off as a coded chant for how bad Joe Biden is. And now people are beginning to be, I think, embarrassed of saying, let's go Brandon on the off chance that somebody might think they actually are rooting for Biden. Like there, there is, Joe Biden has lower approval ratings than Trump, okay? So for all the talk about how unpopular and terrible Trump was, Joe Biden is making Donald Trump look like George Washington in terms of approval rating. And there's a reason for that. It's because he's not even with it anymore. Here is Joe Biden. He was signing his uh, infrastructure bill or another bill. And uh, I don't know which bill it was, frankly, because he forgot the name of the bill. So I have no idea what, what the hell bill he's signing right here. Okay. And then, uh, I'm not going to um, What was that, Joe? Can you repeat that? Because um, that, that wasn't in English. Once more. Okay. And then, uh, I'm not going to do that. I just hope that he's not, you know, I hope that he's not signing somebody else's name to that bill. Maybe I do. Maybe it'd be like a pocket veto if you say if he accidentally signs somebody else's name to the bill. If he signs Corn Pop's name to the bill. Okay, so this guy's no longer with us. And um, and yet Democrats rammed this thing through anyway. They did. So what exactly is in this monstrosity of a bill? Well, first of all, it, it creates the highest personal income tax rate in the developed world. It creates the highest capital gains tax rate since the 1970s. It creates a situation in which eight states pay a combined federal state tax rate of over 60%. It creates 87,000 new IRS auditors and agents, which is fun. Do you love the IRS? Because this place, they just dedicated $80 billion to increasing the size and scope of the IRS. Sounds like fun. You're looking forward to it? Yeah, it's gonna be great. 50% increase in small business audits. 1.2 1.2 more annual IRS, million more annual IRS audits. About half hitting households making less than $75,000 a year is according to Americans for Tax Reform. There's an $8 billion home heating tax. There's a $1.6 billion special tax handout for media companies, 
which is, by the way, a clear First Amendment violation. The federal government is not supposed to be in the business of deciding which companies qualify as local media companies for purpose of giving them a subsidy. That is a clear violation of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Because once the government is subsidizing particular outlets and calling the media outlets so it can give them money and not others, that is rife for ideological discrimination. It also does hike taxes on the middle class. So the, the most hilarious thing about this bill is that after Joe Biden claimed that it would increase the taxes on the millionaires and the billionaires and that it would not increase taxes on the middle class, it actually gave a tax break to millionaires and billionaires in the blue states because it increases the SALT tax deduction. Okay, so state and local tax deductions, the way that it worked under Trump is that he got rid of those. So the rule was before Trump that if you lived in California and you paid a 13% state income tax, you could take that tax off the top of your income and then on the lower line income, you would pay your federal tax. Trump came in, he passed the tax cuts. The tax, the tax cuts got rid of that provision. So now, whatever your top line income was, say it was a million dollars, now you're paying 13% for the California tax, and then you're also paying 37% for the federal tax. For Biden, it was you paid the 13%, which took your number down to $870,000, and then you paid the federal tax on the $870,000. That's what Biden is trying to do. So he's basically giving a tax break to all of his friends in blue states. And, and the White House knows this, by the way. Right, here's Jen Psaki admitting. Is he comfortable where the current provisions stand for these state and local tax deductions, given it would be a pretty significant tax break for the wealthy? Well, uh, let me start by first, um, you know, obviously wasn't what he proposed in his initial package, as you know, but uh, just to come back to that. Um, the president uh, also, though, it's been conveyed to him by leaders in the House and Senate that this needs to be included in order for this legislation to move forward. And uh, he certainly understands that. I mean, it's unreal. It's unreal. So he promised no raising taxes on people who are middle class and yes, raising taxes on the rich. According to Tim Carney, most millionaires would receive a tax cut from the Democrats' Build Back Better bill. Many middle class taxpayers would see a tax increase. Phil Klein at National Review spells it out setting a tax policy center study, which concludes roughly 20 to 30% of middle-income households would pay more in taxes in 2022. A plus, according to the Center for, Center for a Responsible Federal Budget, a household making a million bucks per year will receive 10 times as much salt from SALT cap relief as a middle-class family will receive from the child tax credit expansion. So I guess that, that now AOC, the 2024 presidential candidate, is going to have to wear a dress to the Democratic party caucus saying tax the rich or maybe her dress should say, just say because she did i voted for a bill that raised taxes on the middle class and also gave a tax cut to the rich welcome to the oligarchy alexandra ocasio cortez here was bernie sanders saying this is bad policy i think it's bad politics it's bad policy uh, the democrats correctly have campaigned on the understanding that amidst massive income and wealth inequality We've got to demand that the wealthy stop paying their fair share of taxes, not give them more tax breaks. The bottom line here is we have to help the middle class, not the 1%. Okay, so, yeah, this thing is DOA in the Senate. So what was the point of any of this? What's the point of it? By the way, the CBO, again, reported that this would raise the deficit by $367 billion. And then they said, well, maybe, maybe the IRS will claw back a bunch of money from people. So maybe it'll be like $160 billion, something like that. Okay, here's the reality. It's going to be trillions of dollars in deficits because the actual cost of this bill is not $1.85 trillion. The actual cost of this bill is $4.6 trillion. According to the Wall Street Journal, 
The Penn-Wharton budget model estimates the House bill would cost nearly $4.6 trillion over 10 years if temporary provisions are made permanent, as most will be. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget pegs that cost at $4.9 trillion if temporary tax credits and programs are made permanent through 2031. This would add not $367 billion, not $120 billion, $1.5 trillion to deficits over the next five years without additional tax offsets. Okay, so what exactly is in this budget? So they've enhanced child allowances, $3,600 for children under age six, $3,000 up to age 17. This is the bill's most expensive provision at about $130 billion a year. That's why Democrats limit it to one year. Does anyone think this is going to be one year? Democrats are going to try and leverage this into law forever. And many Republicans will go along with it. The earned income tax credit expansion triples the maximum EITC value for childless adults, but only for one year. They say it'll only cost $15 billion. But um, if you extend it over a decade, which is what they want to do, it's $135 billion. And by the way, you can qualify based on your previous year's earnings. So you don't actually have to work to get this particular tax credit. The new child care entitlement. Households making up to 250% of their state's median income would qualify for child care vouchers. Their payments would be capped at 7% of income, less for lower earners. The bill appropriates $100 billion through 2024 to states and such sums as may be necessary from 2025 to 2027. And as you know, the spending is going to increase. Here's the thing. The price of daycare is going to go up, not down. The reason it's going to go up, not down, is because the same bill that subsidizes daycare for all of these folks also regulates who is allowed to receive money as a daycare provider. It creates all sorts of new restrictions on who gets to be a daycare provider. So it actually limits, it increases the demand and limits the supply, which leads to, wait for it, inflation. Their universal pre-K bill appropriates about $18 billion to states for universal pre-K through 2024, and then quote unquote, such sums as may be necessary through 2027. The pre-K and childcare entitlements, according to the Wall Street Journal, are estimated to cost only $380 billion because they phase in gradually and expire after six years. But they're not going to expire in 2027. Once people get hooked, the government just keeps doing it, which means they cost $800 billion if made permanent. So all of this is just a joke, okay? Everybody, and it's not going anywhere in the Senate. And Nancy Pelosi, by the way, speaks about what's in this bill, okay? She says that, um, it'll, yeah, sure. It, by the way, it allows taxpayer funding for abortion. Joe Manchin said that that was a red line. He said he is not voting for a bill that allows taxpayer funding for abortion. They stuck it in there anyway. Nancy Pelosi knows full well, the entire Democratic Party caucus in the House knows full well this is going nowhere in the Senate. So all she just did is make all of her moderate members walk the plank. She's an idiot. I'm sorry. She's not that great at this. There's been all this talk about what a master negotiator Nancy Pelosi is. I'm wondering under what world that is true. Under what blue moon is that true? That Nancy Pelosi is great at this. All she did is create a raft of ads for Republican candidates against Democratic candidates in Purple District. That's all she did. Like Pramila Jayapal is happy today. She's not going to be happy when Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema kill the bill. But it's, it, it is amazing. Here's Nancy Pelosi admitting it allows taxpayer, taxpayer funding for abortion. Yes. The Helms and Hyde Amendment are still not in the reconciliation bill, but weeks ago, Chairman Jeffrey said that anything is on the table. Is that still the position? It's not in the bill. It's not in the bill. Thank you for your question. It's not in the bill. It's not in the bill. Thank you for your question. The Hyde Amendment's not in the bill. Right, which means it's DOA. And then this crazy lady, she says, um, spending on climate change. So there's a ton of spending on climate change here, which is just a waste of money because most of the spending on climate change, as all as far as I'm aware, is not directed toward, say, building new seawalls 
or shoring up infrastructure. It is all geared toward green energy boondoggles for political allies. It's all Solyndra writ large. Here's Nancy Pelosi, though. I, I love, you got to love the religious principles of hardcore Democrats like Nancy Pelosi. She's such a, a wonderful Catholic Nancy Pelosi that she believes that abortion is a positive good, but spending on climate change is a religious issue. For me, it's a religious thing. I believe this is God's creation and we have a moral obligation to be good stewards. But if you don't share that view, you must share the view that we have an obligation uh, to future generations. So we're very excited about what is in there. And it is paid for. Okay, the, the kind of blasphemy that she speaks from the podium, you almost expect the sky to open up and the thunderbolt to just come down. You have to believe we are stewards of God's creation. So we're going to spend unbelievable amounts of money to pay off all my political allies. Why gelato? Also, dead babies are fine. God doesn't care about the dead babies. Good luck with this. So um, congratulations to the Democrats, I guess, for passing a bill that will go nowhere in the Senate and completely screws all of the moderates in the Democratic. Like, I don't even know how they how they convince the moderates to vote for this thing. Like, how do you convince the Josh Gottheimers of the world that this is a good idea? I guess they just don't want to take crap from the Democratic primary. Uh, they, they, they don't want to take crap from the Democratic Party. They're afraid they won't be able to get a job with their friends after they're out of Congress, but they're all going to be out of Congress. The Republicans right now are running eight to 10 points ahead on the generic ballot. That is the biggest lead in the history of the polling. Republicans are set to pick up 50, 60 seats in the House. And Nancy Pelosi's like, what if I shove through this piece of crap bill that's filled with just garbage that no one's going to vote for in the Senate? That'll be great. Meanwhile, I got Joe Biden, addled old Joe Biden, saying that Build Back Better is going to lower the deficit. He tweeted out yesterday, my Build Back Better Act is going to reduce the deficit. By more than $100 billion over 10 years. Then he fell asleep, and they woke him up again, and he continued. It's going to lower costs, create jobs, and rebuild our economy. Let's get this done. Um, it's not going to reduce the deficit. CBO says it's not going to reduce the deficit. You're lying about the cost of the bill. Okay, so Kevin McCarthy decided to try and hold this thing up. He spoke for eight hours and 37 minutes. Now, um... Just going to put it out there. Any politician speaking for eight hours and 37 minutes is basically Dante's seventh circle of hell. But here is Kevin McCarthy ripping into the bill as is appropriate. The bill is a piece of crap. It's, it's, it's garbage. Mr. Speaker, we are minutes away from voting on a $5 trillion, two more than 2,000-page bill. Some of its effects will be quickly felt. Others not for a few years. But I guarantee you that no matter the time frame, all the new Washington spending in this bill is only the beginning of disaster. Okay, well, that is true. And if you don't believe Kevin McCarthy, why don't you believe the Biden administration, which continues to maintain that its policies are wonderful, even as they have precisely the effect they were intended to have, crushing Americans. Yesterday, Jen Psaki defended canceling the Keystone XL pipeline, despite the fact that oil prices are spiking. I think the problem with that argument is that the Keystone pipeline uh, isn't even really functioning. I mean, it was only partially built. It isn't even really functioning. So suggesting that 
Uh, changing that would lower the price of gas. I don't know that that makes substantive sense. Well, but the market looks out. They look at, at where it will be in the future and canceling the Keystone Pipeline, not allowing other pipelines to go forward or challenging other pipelines might reduce or, or cause some concern in the market. Well, we look at every pipeline on an individual basis. The president made the decision when only about, I think, 8% of the pipeline had been built not to move forward as we looked at the environmental impacts and weighed them with the economic impacts. Um, and the decision was certainly made. Uh, no, you did, you did not look at any of those factors. You just knew that the left wing was fighting mad over Keystone XL, so you canceled it, and then the gas prices have risen because you have taken an anti-oil and gas position in the middle of a gas price spike because you guys are idiots. Okay, in just one second, we'll talk about the Democratic Party continuing to double down on the most radical policy imagined. Like, are they just delusional? I don't understand what they're doing. Like, just for, Again, from a political perspective, it is going to go down in history as one of the great acts of political malpractice of all time that Joe Biden entered office after a highly unpopular one-term president and proceeded to do everything he said he would not do, embracing the positions of the person he defeated in the primary. It's insane. It's legitimately insane. You have to wonder whether this geriatric patient is even in control of his own brain at this point to make that kind of politically unpalatable move. It's so wild. I've never seen anything remotely like it. We'll get to more of this in just one second. First, we're talking about the price of gas right now. Yeah, did you, have you seen it? Like that sticker shock is pretty wild. I'm thrilled to introduce an incredible app that everyone who buys gas needs to know about. Get Upside. My listeners are making up to 25 cents for every gallon of gas every time they fill up. Just download the free Get Upside app in the App Store or Google Play right now. Use promo code Shapiro. Get a bonus 25 cents per gallon on your first fill up. That's up to 50 cents cash back. Don't pay full price at the pump anymore. Get cash back using it. Get upside. Just download the app for free. Use promo code Shapiro. Get up to 50 cents per gallon cash back on your very first tank of gas. Some people who drive a lot are making as much as two to $300 a month in cash back. There is no catch. The cash back gets added directly to your account. You can cash out anytime to your bank account, PayPal, or an e-gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download that free GetUpside app. Use promo code Shapiro to get up to 50 cents per gallon cash back on your very first tank of gas. That is promo code Shapiro. And again, that's up to 50 cents per gallon cash back on the first tank. And then beyond that, up to 25 cents per gallon on every single gallon of gas, like for the rest of time. That's a pretty great deal for just downloading the app. Head on over to Get Upside right now and download that app at the App Store. Alrighty, we'll get to more on all of this in just one second. First, history is being made right here at The Daily Wire with your help. We were the first company in America to file suit against the Biden administration for their unconstitutional vax mandate. And we are pleased to see the Biden administration suspended their implementation and enforcement this week. They're continuing, by the way, to tell people that they ought to continue enforcement of this in lieu of regulation. Don't do it if you're a company. Stop it. Don't make their job easy. But, well, what we've done so far is huge. It's not going to stop yet, okay? The fact is, this is going to end up at the Supreme Court. There are a lot of businesses who are enforcing mandates. Our victory doesn't mean anything unless those businesses do the right thing and stop this nonsense right now. I understand. You guys were under pressure from the federal government. Now you're not. So, Stop it. If you're an employee, your company cannot force you to take a vaccine you do not want or should not force you to take a vaccine you do not want. Don't let them hide behind the vaccine mandate. Unless we lose, nobody should have to comply. And we're not going to lose. We're going to win this case. It has now been consolidated at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. We are the lead plaintiffs in that case so far. Sign our petition against Joe Biden's vaccine mandate over at dailywire.com slash do not comply. Send a message to the Biden administration that Americans don't just do whatever you tell them to do. Over 600,000 people have already signed the petition. The more signatures we get, the louder the message. That's why we are aiming to get to 1 million signatures. So head on over to dailywire.com slash do not comply and sign the petition today. Also, big announcement. This Sunday, I'm joined by my favorite governor because he's my governor, Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. 
who has taken a firm stance against the Biden administration's unconstitutional vax mandates, just like we have here at The Daily Wire. We sat down to make sense of it all. It is truly worth a listen. We get to everything from Ron DeSantis' handling of COVID to why Florida is drawing people down here to his philosophy of government in general. Go check it out this Sunday, dailywire.com or on my YouTube channel, Ben Shapiro. It's a pleasure to sit down with the governor. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Daily Wire members get access to special bonus content from Sunday special episodes, so don't miss out. Join at dailywire.com slash subscribe. Get 25% off with code do not comply. You're listening to the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. All righty. Meanwhile, again, I don't know what is driving so many thinkers on the Democratic side of the aisle these days, but it is certainly not reality. There's a piece from Christina Wyman, who is author of the forthcoming novel Jawbreaker. She writes for NBC News. She has a piece today titled Schools Face Parents Who Want to Ban Critical Race Theory and Don't Get How Teaching Works. An educator's top goal is to teach students to think. Parents who dictate curricula with their personal opinions, ideologies, and biases hinder that goal. Did you know the teachers have no? None. They have no personal opinions, ideologies, or biases, teachers? None. They are just perfect advocates of Socratic truth. Or alternatively, they want to indoctrinate your kids and they don't want you to know what they're doing. Christina Wyman says, parents and politicians across the country are interfering with the curricula that public schools use to teach students. State legislatures are passing laws to keep critical race theory out of schools. Literary classics like Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye are banned for sexual content. School libraries are coming under attack for containing books about gender. There are even parents who are trying to shield students from learning about mental health and suicide, as though helping children build emotional fortitude is a bad thing. While the political climate and national involvement in school districts gave the phenomenon a broader platform and have more serious ramifications, this behavior is nothing new. Parents have always tried to interfere with curricula, as I observed when teaching middle school in the mid-2000s. Even then, there was no shortage of parental input about the content of my instruction from books to test questions. Part of the problem is that parents think they have the right to control teaching and learning because their children are the ones being educated. But it actually, GASP, doesn't work that way. It's sort of like entering a surgical unit, thinking you can interfere with an operation simply because the patient is your child. Oh my God. Okay, so let's begin with the false analogy between being a surgeon and being a middle school teacher. I'm sorry, did you go to like eight years of STEM schooling in order to determine how to operate on a kidney? Or did you just go to a crappy ed school where they taught you a bunch of social justice nonsense and now you think that you're qualified to teach children despite never having dealt with actual real life children yourself very often? Like who, who makes the analogy between a surgeon, like a heart surgeon, and a person whose main job is to read a curriculum designed by other people and then infuse it with their own biases? It's like, that's ridiculous on his face. Second of all, she says, you know, parents are, are misinformed if they think that they can control their kids' education the way that they can control medical care. Wait, hold up. Parents do control their kids' medical care, you idiot. We do this all the time. It is our job to decide whether our children need surgery, for example. Now, once I delegate that surgery to a surgeon, I shouldn't be bursting into the room and trying to fix it. But one of the ways I pick the surgeon is by asking the surgeon ahead of time what exactly they're going to be doing. I know this because I've had to have, watch my kid have surgery. It's no fun. This, this bizarre idea that she's promoting that when you hand your kid over to the state, the state is now the expert on how to educate your kid is crazy towns. The analogy is proper in terms of parental action. I get to decide whether my kid has surgery. I get to decide whether my kid needs medical treatment. And I get to decide which doctor does it. But with the public schools, I don't get to decide any of that. You force my kid to go to a public school if I can't afford to go to a private school, which is why vouchers should be a thing. So I can choose where to put my kids. 
Of course, parents should have control over education, especially when you're talking about subjects like English or history. Yes, if a parent burst into a classroom and said, you're teaching calculus wrong, and then suggested that we break out the abacuses, that would be silly. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the values that are taught to your kids. And so you have now democratic thinkers saying, no, 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 no. Teaching English and history and social science is exactly like teaching math. It's just incredibly stupid. Please do this, please. She talks about what an expert she is. When I first pursued teaching nearly two decades ago, I was struck by the list of requirements I had to fulfill for the state of New Jersey to determine I was qualified. Several years of focused college instruction, followed by intense mentorship, state-level exams, and more exams. I went to grad school. I got a PhD in curriculum, instruction, and teacher education. Well, whoop de frickin' do And by the way, those state educational standards have made New Jersey the crown jewel, particularly inner-city New Jersey, the crown jewel of the world's educational systems. So yeah, hand it over to, uh, to the experts and shut up. I hope Democrats run on this. I really hope they do. And they keep doubling down. They're just doubling down. It's absolutely unbelievable. Meanwhile, the Biden administration continues to double down. So we've discussed the case of Saul Omarova over the past couple of weeks. This is the person that the Democrats want to be controller of the banks, essentially, run the banking industry in the United States. She has said in the past that she wishes to abolish all private holdings of, of savings accounts and checking accounts that should all be done through the Federal Reserve. So then the Fed can determine who gets a loan and who does not. She said in the past she wants to bankrupt the oil and gas industry. Yesterday, she said she doesn't like Bitcoin. Yeah, no bleep you don't like Bitcoin. There's a shock. You mean a person who's in favor of centralized government control over every aspect of the economy doesn't like Bitcoin, which is the alternative to centralized government control of the economy? Color me shocked. Here is Saul Omarova, the Biden administration's communist nominee for running the banks. And by the way, when I say communist nominee, I mean she earned the Lenin Prize at the University of Moscow and will not reveal her PhD thesis before being nominated to this position. Do you believe that a government-issued representation of currency, of value, is superior to private commerce? I believe that we do have government-issued money right now in this country, and it's working great. And I worry about allowing private innovation to undermine a lot of important public policies. Okay, so um, Bitcoin is bad. Bitcoin is super bad because it undermines public policies and undermines the government's ability to control all aspects of the currency. It is not. Bitcoin is a great alternative to the government inflating the currency, doing whatever it wants with your dollar, doing whatever it wants with your savings. Her deep desire to nationalize nearly everything should scare the hell out of everyone. Now, the left is trying to pretend that this is not true, right? The left is trying to pretend that she is actually anti-communist, that she is some sort of free marketeer, which is amazing since like two years ago, she tweeted out that there was no gender pay gap in the Soviet Union, right? Things were wonderful in the Soviet Union. She, she says that uh, she chose in her PhD program to study American democratic theory and uh, she was on exchange at the University of Wisconsin when the Soviet Union collapsed. She simply stayed. Okay, but um, this is this is an absurdity. So her her academic writing about the banking industry was all about centralizing all power. Okay, so in her book, The People's Ledger: How to Democratize Money and Finance the Economy, a seventy-one page academic study on how to separate big banks' lending features from their role as safekeepers of Americans' savings, she wanted the Federal Reserve to replace bank deposits. There's a reason she's being defended by Elizabeth Warren. 
Okay, so John Kennedy from Louisiana, he uh, he went after her in pretty colorful fashion. This, of course, made ma many people very angry. You're not allowed to mention communism or Marxism ever, ever, because people might notice. In 2019, you joined the Facebook group, a Marxist Facebook group, to discuss socialist and anti-capitalist views. Now, that's what I see from your record. And you have the right to believe every one of these things. You do. This is America. But I don't mean any disrespect. I, I don't know whether to call you professor or comrade. How dare he? How dare he? Now, she says now that she has a unique appreciation for our dynamic and diverse markets. But all of the things that she has said about our dynamic and diverse markets are critical of those dynamic and diverse markets, so far as I'm aware. She said that her articles are designed to expand the boundaries of academic debate. Oh, that's what it was. She was just raising issues. Just raising issues. Okay, so Elizabeth Warren, of course, says it's a red scare. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, how dare he? It's a red scare, says Elizabeth Warren, who herself has embodied a lot of uh, sort of Marxist ideals in her own campaigning. Professor Omarova, I know that the giant banks object to your willingness to enforce the law to keep our system safe and that you may cut into big bank profits. So they and their Republican buddies have declared war on you. The attacks on your nomination have been vicious and personal. We've just seen them. Sexism, racism, pages straight out of Joe McCarthy's 1950s Red Scare tactics. It is all there on full display. Welcome to Washington in 2021. By the way, the name of her actual thesis was, quote, Karl Marx's economic analysis and the theory of revolution in the Capitol. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like there should be some open questions. Sherrod Brown did the same thing. This is the senator from Ohio trying to defend Omarova. We know that a shadowy political group founded excuse me, funded, funded by former Trump staff, has been fomenting these personal attacks and pushing radical right-wing new right -wing news sites to spread misinformation. These inflammatory insinuations continue to stoke the unhinged rhetoric that has poisoned our politics. Now, now we know what happens when Trumpism meets McCarthyism. It's a cruelty no person should experience. It's so tiresome. I'm sorry. This is so tiresome. How about we find out what she actually thinks and wonder whether somebody with Marxist leanings ought to control the banking industry in the United States. But really, it, Democrats keep, apparently they just think that if they keep shouting Trump over and over and over, then like Beetlejuice, he will appear and then win elections for them. This seems to be their opinion of the situation. It really is quite amazing. Meanwhile, speaking of people who continue to kowtow to the Chinese, Jen Psaki yesterday, was asked why Joe Biden won't raise a COVID investigation with China. Joe Biden has been very hands-off with regard to the human rights crisis that China has been purveying in Hong Kong, the threats against Taiwan. Joe Biden has been relatively, relatively sanguine about all of this. And of course, he, neither he nor John Kerry, brought up the COVID investigations with China, which unleashed a virus from Wuhan on the world, which has killed some 4 million people. Here's Jen Psaki trying to defend it. Did he ask President Xi to cooperate specifically with this U.S. intel agency-led investigation into the origins of COVID. Peter, it's clear that that's what we want. That's what we've been pressing on. I don't have any more to, to read out for you from the meeting. You're saying that it's clear. Is it clear to somebody who has a Zoom meeting with the president that that's what he means if that's not what he says? I think the president has spoken publicly on this a number of times. Our national security officials have conveyed very clearly, I don't think it's a secret. That's what we want. That's what we've been pressing for. Okay, but yes, Biden didn't say it to Xi because he's afraid of saying such things to Xi. Meanwhile, Joe Biden was asked about a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics. 
which are coming up in just a couple of years here. And there had already been some talk that the administration was going to do it, and uh, Biden seems to be a little bit walking it back. Sir, do you support a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics? Something we're considering. Something we're considering. Somebody should inform him his administration already floated a trial balloon about just doing it. Okay, meanwhile, speaking of that Wuhan virus investigation, now people are trying to claim that it was at the wet market. According to a scientist who has poured over public accounts of early COVID-19 cases in China, he reported on Thursday an influential WHO inquiry had most likely gotten the early chronology of the pandemic wrong. The new analysis suggests the first known patient sickened with coronavirus was a vendor in a large Wuhan animal market, not an accountant who lived many miles from it. That report was published on Thursday in the prestigious journal Science. It will revive, though certainly not settle, the debate over whether the pandemic started with a spillover from the wildlife sold at the market, a leak from a Wuhan virology lab, or some other way. The scientist, Michael Warabay, is a leading expert in tracing the evolution of viruses at University of Arizona came upon timeline discrepancies by combing through what had already been made public in medical journals, as well as video interviews in a Chinese news outlet with people believed to have the first two documented infections. Orobe argues the vendor's ties to the Huanan seafood wholesale market, as well as a new analysis of the earliest hospitalized patients strongly suggest that the pandemic began there. But here's the thing. We're never going to find out whether this is true because Joe Biden really doesn't care all that much about whether this is true. Joe Biden has consistently said that he wants to see China as a strategic competitor, not as an enemy. Well, here's the thing. China views us as an enemy and they're wielding their power over corporate institutions in order to get what they want. We thought that by opening up China, we would be liberalizing China. And to a certain extent, we did. We liberalized parts of their economy. We certainly did not liberalize their political system. And instead, what they have done is they've now hooked us on the opium of cheap markets and cheap goods. That is what they've done. And they've taken our corporations and turned them inside out. Now, listen, I think these corporations are gutless. I think these corporations should stand up. I think they should not go along with this. But I also think that the federal government at a certain point, Western civilization at a certain point, has to tell the Chinese that we are going to cut them off economically at the knees if they continue to purvey the kind of political terrorism in which they are currently engaged. But instead, we've got corporations that are that are just kowtowing to them. It's unbelievable. According to Axios, the Marriott Hotel in Prague declined to host a conference of activists and leaders from China's Uyghur diaspora this month, citing political neutrality in an email shared with Axios shows. The Chinese government has condemned the World Uyghur Congress, which has attempted to rally global attention to the, geno- the genocide in Zhangjiang, China. The decision to reject the conference reflects China's growing ability to extend authoritarian control beyond its borders by making clear to corporations that crossing the party's red lines will be bad for business. About 200 delegates from 25 countries gathered in Prague from November 12th to 14th to elect the organization's new leadership and hold discussions with politicians, academics, and civil society representatives from around the world. The Prague Marriott Hotel declined to host the conference because they said they were afraid of pissing off the Chinese, basically. So it's not just them, by the way. Obviously, we've seen the NBA kowtow to the Chinese as well. Enos Cantor is, I will say, he's he's... What he's saying about China right now is just great. So Enos Cantor is the, the center for the Boston Celtics. They are playing the Lakers tonight. And he is uh, he's going to be wearing sneakers that show Xi Jinping putting a crown on King James. He tweeted out money over morals for the king. Sad and disgusting how these athletes pretend they care about social justice. They really do shut up and dribble when big boss China says so. Says, did you educate yourself about the slave labor that made your shoes? Or is that not part of your research? And he's going after LeBron James. And naturally, Soap and Deb, foolish reporter from the New York Times, like, 
Why are conservatives so excited about this? Well, maybe it's because LeBron is one of the most famous people on earth and he is backing Chinese tyranny over freedom. Maybe it's that. So Ben Deb's like, why aren't you so angry at, at Tillman Furtado or Furtado, whoever the hell the, the owner of the Houston Rockets is? Because no one's ever heard of him. I don't even remember his name. LeBron James, however, is one of the most popular and powerful political and cultural figures in America. So yeah, that's why it's great that Enos Cantor is going after him. Good for him. Really good for him. Also good for the WTA. So the Women's Tennis Association is now calling on China to explain what the hell just happened to Peng Shuai. Now, Peng Shuai is a Chinese tennis player. She put up a post on social media alleging that a high-ranking Communist Party official had raped her. The post was immediately taken down and she was disappeared. And then a statement was issued to the WTA in her name that was obviously written by the Communist Party. Clearly written by the Communist Party. Her post was deleted within 30 minutes of publication. Her Weibo account, which has more than half a million followers, is still blocked from searchers on the platform. Earlier this week, Chinese state media released an email purportedly from Pang, walking back her allegations, saying they weren't true and claiming she is fine. It was clearly staged. It clearly was not true. And so this put the WTA in a bit of a bind. Do they alienate the Chinese and stand up for this tennis player? Or do they simply kowtow to the Chinese government the way the NBA has? And good for them. The WTA was like, nope, we're not doing it. According to CNN, the head of the Women's Tennis Association, Steve Simon, has said he is willing to lose hundreds of millions of dollars worth of business in China if tennis player Peng Shuai is not fully accounted for and her allegations are not properly investigated. Simon said in an interview Thursday with CNN, we're definitely willing to pull our business and deal with all the complications that come with it. This is certainly bigger than the business. Women need to be respected and not censored. Good for him. Seriously, more of this. More of this. Simon said, when you factor in the commitment to prize money and the commitments to the WTA, and you factor in the stadium build and real estate elements, it's over $1 billion commitment they've made to the WTA finals and the WTA in Shenzhen. But apparently, they're willing to pull out. Serena Williams also put out a statement. I'm devastated and shocked to hear about the news of my peer, Peng Shui. I hope she's safe and found as soon as possible. This must be investigated. We must not stay silent. Naomi Osaka also released a statement with hashtag, where is Peng Shui? We'll see if any of these people have the, uh, the stones to separate off from Nike for continuing to do business this way. But at least they're speaking out. Now, honestly, really, credit to Serena Williams, even if she's not going to cut ties with Nike, her speaking out against the Chinese government at the risk of pissing off Nike is a good thing. LeBron is, is just a pathetic specimen, a pathetic moral specimen who, on, on behalf of his shoe dollars, stands up for the Chinese government. So I'm glad to see more people standing up to Chinese predations. It is deeply necessary at this point. All righty, we will be back a little bit later with an additional hour of content. First, you can't forget to end your week by checking out the Andrew Clavin Show. Drew's show is every Friday. He's got an exciting evening planned for you. Head on over to dailywire.com at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central. Tune in. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Andrew Clavin Show, The Michael Moles Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. Thanks for listening. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Elliot Feld. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Wydowski. Associate producer, Bradford Carrington. Host producer, Justin Barber. The show is edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Fabiola Cristina. Production assistant, Jessica Kranz. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright, Daily Wire 2021. 
Hey everybody, this is Andrew Clavin, host of The Andrew Clavin Show. You know, some people are depressed because the republic is collapsing, the end of days is approaching, and the moon's turned to blood. But on The Andrew Clavin Show, that's where the fun just gets started. So come on over to The Andrew Clavin Show and laugh your way through the fall of the republic with me, Andrew Clavin.